Hosea chapter 10. Israel is a luxury and vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Bethaven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idols. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of heaven, the sins of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibba, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibba? When I place, I will discipline them. When I please, I will discipline them. And nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. Shalom destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. I think that each of us, through the course of our life, or I should say I know that each of us, through the course of our life, at times, excesses in things. We find something that we really like, and we obsess over it. And we throw our very selves at that thing, our money, our time, times it even costs us relationships. All around us, we can see this sort of excess. You may have seen shows that highlight these people called hoarders as they hoard things around them. Or a show my children have liked to watch in this season is The Great Christmas Light Fight where they go and these people literally hundreds of thousands of lights upon their homes. And it's really a picture of excess as we've taken something that might be good and we've pushed it to the nth degree. It's all about focusing and fixating on the passion 
or, or on the thing with great passion. And Israel is guilty of the same thing because Israel was obsessed with fertility, with being fruitful. They wanted to be fruitful in their grain harvest and in their families. And they were going to go to whatever lengths they needed to secure this security and this fertility. And so they covered themselves. They went about going through many options to make sure they were covered. Yeah, they worshiped Yahweh. They also worshiped idols. They also sought security in other nations. They had trusted in all these things to making sure, in order to make sure they were covered. They were hedging all their bets as it were, right? Let's make sure that we're going to receive what we want. God, in chapter 10, systematically removes these things from the people. It's a form of judgment. He goes to their idols and he takes their idols from them. He removes the facade, this falseness they put up around them. And he's going to leave them exposed and with nothing. So as we come to our text today, we're going to see three things. The removal of altars, the removal of idols, and the removal of kings. The removal of altars, the removal of idols, and the removal of kings. Let's begin by looking at the removal of altars. As we begin chapter 10, again, Israel is compared to something good. Israel, you were a luxuriant vine. And you can imagine... Just, it's a very descriptive thing, right? You can imagine as you go and you find a grapevine and it's just loaded. I, I guess we can't say grapes around here with muscadine, right? Or scuppernong. It's just loaded with fruit. He says, this is what you are. You are a luxury vine that yields its fruit. If you were growing this vine, you would say, oh, look how good this vine is. And the more your fruit increased, the more you built altars. You see the the accusation there? The more fruitful they were, the more they built altars. The more they built this hedge of protection around them that they could keep being this luxuriant vine. Altars or standing stones, these pillars. These were two elements of the cultic worship as they worshiped maybe Yahweh, but in a pagan way. It was religious folly. As they increased altars, they increased their sinning. What they needed was an apprehension, a knowledge of the will of God, but instead they gave it up. They gave it up for something far less. They increased in this unacceptable Worship, And this is a recurring pattern, Hosea, isn't it? We've seen it over and over again. Uh, If you've taken the time to notice, we see here, Israel is blessed. And as they are blessed, they turn to idols and to other gods. There's an affirmation of their fertility, followed by an indictment of their transgressions. This folly, this foolishness is rooted, Hosea tells us in verse 2, In their heart, their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. Their heart is false. 
even if they are representing all the right things, even if they come and, and, and worship Yahweh in the way they, they are technically by the law supposed to, their heart is false. They have the trappings of religion, but it's false at the very core of their being. They are false. They are t- declared guilty. They are liable for judgment. And he says, I'm going to destroy your altars. I'm going to destroy your pillars. I'm going to tear them down. And this is a kind of a scary thing, really, as we consider if, if we're to put ourselves in this situation. Because for Israel, the altars and the pillars, they were the wall. They were the, in, in ancient times, you needed a wall for protection, right? You needed that wall to make sure that you'd be safe. And that's what they did. It wasn't a, a physical wall, a literal wall. They had built up this wall saying, we're being so fruitful Let's not lose it. And God comes in and and destroys it. Now, we're guilty of the same thing, right? We build up security for ourselves. We trust in those things to be there for us, to be secure for us. Build idols in our hearts. The people foolishly in verse 3 See, we have no king. We do not fear the Lord. You really see the the wretchedness of the people at this point, right? Because this is not just Lord general sense. In the Hebrew text, I would say Yahweh. In your English text, you look at it, and anytime you see Lord in all caps, that's Yahweh, right? That's God himself. They are declaring, we do not fear Yahweh. That's what they're saying here. We do not fear Yahweh. And a king, what could a king do for us? You can see the arrogance in their word. They're rejecting all heavenly and earthly authority. They think they've got it all figured out. But in verse 4 we see, he says, they utter mere words. Empty oaths. With empty oaths they make covenants. Oaths were part of covenant making. In fact, the covenant given to them by Yahweh, uh, they were to take an oath before him. They committed themselves to him and obedience to him. But they're making oaths just for the sake of making oaths. And it's an, an infringement on Yahweh's sovereignty. They have violated the covenant God made with them as they emptily make these oaths to those around them. And justice, justice will come upon them. He says, judgment springs up like a poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. What happens if you take a little poison? It's not good, right? And think about some of the most deadly poisonous snakes out there. They don't have to get much of you. Poison, in that sense, is a very lethal thing, isn't it? It's, it's in the New Testament. We can go and say uh, the idea of a little bad leaven. What does a little bad leaven do? It ruins the whole, doesn't it? It's the same thing here. It's a, um, poison, poisonous weeds are creeping up in the fields, and they're going to bring justice upon the people. 
Because Israel's hearts have been corrupted. They have chased after empty things. They have been corrupted in the whole of their being. We too have to be careful that we are not allowing poisonous weeds into the field. We can't allow poisonous things into our hearts that corrupt the whole of our being. Poison is deadly in its function. You may get bitten on the finger, but what quickly happens to that poison as it goes into the finger? It spreads everywhere to the whole of your body. We have to tear down the altars that we have erected in our hearts, the things that we have put up in place of worship to God. And there are many good things that we turn into objects objects of worship. And each of us, I mean, it really is a question of your heart, right? I, can't, I could sit here and list things off. I could, say, I could say family, I could say jobs, I could say things, possessions, whatever, power, pride, whatever it may be. It, it, it becomes a matter of examining your own heart. What have you placed in your heart? What have you erected in your heart that has become a barrier between you and God, the thing that you're trusting on and resting on? If I just have this, I will be okay. We have to tear these things down, these things that have become objects of worship. We have to put them aside and worship God and God alone. We cannot bow the knee to other gods. It's a removing of idols. Our first point was the removing of altars, and the second point is the removing of, of idols. And you'll go, well, aren't that, isn't that basically the same thing? And, and there is a sense in which they're similar, but it's also different. An altar is the place in which we give sacrifice, we give worship. Oftentimes, at the altar, you're giving worship to something. That is the idol. We have to also remove idols. God is coming to remove idols. Verse 5, the inhabitants of Samaria tremble. The calf of Beth-Avon. The calf had become a symbol in Israel. And it's not hard. We, we look to scripture. We can see it is in Egypt. They're leaving Egypt. And to represent, the funny thing about uh, Israel in the Exodus, as they're at Mount Sinai, and as Moses is up there getting the law, the Ten Commandments, and you have Aaron, and he's down there with the people, and they want to worship, right? Even as they made the calf, who were they trying to worship? Yahweh. They wanted to worship Yahweh. The problem was the way they were trying to worship Yahweh. They wanted to give a a golden image here, a golden calf. The calf becomes a symbol in Israel as that which delivered them. And and I say that they wanted to worship Yahweh. Of course, their motives were misplaced, but, but there wasn't even so much a sense in which they were trying to, at that point, jump back to Egypt They wanted to worship. Their heart wanted to worship, but instead of looking to God, they wanted to look into something tangible that they could touch and see and feel. The calf becomes a symbol of the worship. It's their idol. And it becomes for Israel this cultic version of Yahweh worship. Because even in Hosea, they're doing this. 
They're worshiping Yahweh. Quotes, right? They're worshiping Yahweh. Yahweh is one of their those hedges they put up. We need to worship him too. And it reminds me of the New Testament where Paul is going in Athens, right? They're going to Athens. And you see, hey, you have you have all these gods. You even have this statue to the unknown god. And why did they have the statue to the unknown god? It was the hedging of bets. Just in case there's another god out there we don't know about, we don't want to offend him. So we're going to have this statue to the unknown god. Of course, Paul uses that for a whole different purpose which we're not going to talk about today, but it's the same kind of deal. They worshiped Yahweh, but it was just as one of many. They needed to remove the idol, this idol which is symbolized by the calf. And it's going to be removed from them. We see as we go forward here, it's people mourn for it, as so do the idolatrous priests, for it has departed from them, it says. It'll be carried off to Assyria. God will remove from Israel its idol. They no longer feared him. They no longer feared uh, or believed that he had power, that Assyria could simply come and remove him. And he is going to bring to them, it's a double, he says, they will be both put to shame and they will be ashamed. And you're like, well, that's the same word. Why did you say it twice? And it really is for emphasis. You're going to be really, really shamed. You're going to be really, really ashamed when judgment comes. I remember once I was 12, 13 I guess. I don't remember exactly how old I was. I remember I was in a Sunday school class and the the pastor's wife was the teacher of the Sunday school class. And I remember her, and I I was an obnoxious kid. I'm probably an obnoxious adult, but if I am, just don't tell me. I don't want to know about it. And I remember her keeping me back one day after Sunday school and, and she said to me, you know, Daniel, the way you act in class is keeping people from understanding and learning the lessons and stuff like that. And I remember just being so ashamed because that wasn't my intention. I just thought I was being funny or whatever, engaging. And I was just so ashamed of how I acted. And we all have those moments in our life where we just feel shame, right? Where we're ashamed of something that we've done. And he says, you're going to feel shame for you have worshipped these idols and they'll be carried off. You've worshipped this calf. And these things are already in motion. Samaria, their king shall perish. It'll be like a thorn, or excuse me, it'd be like a twig on the face of the waters. Can you imagine a twig, a twig on the face of the waters? What happens to that twig? It's nothing. You don't ever see it again. You don't know where it goes. It's nothing to the face of the water. He will come in and he will remove these things from them. These places of idolatry, they will no longer be. It says they'll grow up with thorns and all manner of wild growth. When does wild growth come into a place? When it's not being used anymore, when it's not being tended for, when it's not being cared for. He says, I'm going to remove these things from you so they will no longer be in use.
From the days of Gibba, you have sinned, O Israel. Twice here, he's going to mention Gibba. And again, we don't know the exact events that happened at Gibba. We don't know all the details, but we know is that as they have sinned before, they continue to sin. And because of their sin, he comes to judge them. They have become vulnerable to predators. And it's interesting as we go through here, and as we go through the bulk of Hosea, we see cities oftentimes represented, and they usually have some sort of adjective tied to them. The shame at Belpur, the evil in Gilgad, the fear and mourning in Samaria, the sin at Gibeah. And it shows the full range of the wickedness of the people. They have utterly turned from God to this world. What would it be like today if I had a magic button here and your idols just kind of popped up over your head and we could all look around and we could see the idols of our hearts represented. What might be your response? If our idols sat upon our heads for all to see, what kind of shame would rise up around us? What are the things we don't want people to know that we cherish the most? But the reality is this, the best thing God can do for us is to expose our idols particularly those secret, hidden idols that we don't show to anybody. That he would remove them far from us. This is what he's going to do for Israel. But the, the wondrous thing that Israel does not have here is that as he removes the idols for Israel, he also removes himself. But the wondrous things for us is as he removes our idols for those who are in him. He does not remove himself from us. We must remove the things that we have given his place and put him there to give him worship that we have given greedily to other things. We have to put away evil, shame, and sin and put on Christ. He will remove our idols far from us, but he'll also remove kings. The removal of kings is our third and final point. Starting in verse 11, we see here he uses another animal metaphor. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. Now, I don't have to explain this because this is obvious to everyone in the room, right? No. We don't, agriculture is something that sadly may be too far removed from us, but they would oftentimes use um, calves in threshing. And this calf was so well trained that it was spared, her neck was spared. The neck being a place where a yoke would be placed. This calf was so well trained that the plowman could communicate and give instruction in such a way that the calf joyfully and willingly obeyed and the neck would be spared. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow and Jacob must harrow for himself. Now Ephraim, Judah, and Jacob, this is all one word for the same here, Israel. 
He says, but you who have rebelled, I will put you to the yoke. I will put the yoke around your neck. My daughters, as we this last August went to Iowa and we went to this Dutch village, we showed them one of those things you put around your neck to carry water. You know, water on either side, pails on either side. Big wooden contraption. Um, they were like, I think they actually put one over their necks, didn't y'all? And it's heavy, and they didn't have water on those things at that time. But you think about carrying water over with a wooden thing over your neck every day. It would grow tiresome. It would... Uh, be hard work. And God will come to Israel who is not obedient and he will through the use of a yoke cause her to be obedient. When we are not living obeying as we should he will bring us into conformity with his will. He will put the yoke upon the neck. Because here's the problem, as we see in verse 12. This is what they should have been doing. Sow for yourself righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up fallow ground, and then in time seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. They were supposed to be sowing righteousness. That which is right before God, this steadfast love, this is that Hebrew word, I've probably said it before, you've probably forgotten, and that's okay. Hesed, covenant loyalty, covenant love. This is what they were supposed to be sowing. And when they sowed it, they reaped righteousness, but they weren't. They weren't. They ate fruits of falsehood. They trusted only in themselves they have plowed in verse 3 you have plowed iniquity you have reaped injustice you have eaten the fruits of lies you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors they trusted in their own strength of arms instead of trusting in God and therefore war will come upon them verse 14 the tumult of war shall rise among your people and you your fortress shall be destroyed then it goes on. War is coming upon Israel because of their disobedience to God. Judgment is coming upon the people. And there really is here, we see this wonderful description of what the God's relationship with his people should be. God, as the wise plowman... <coughs> His relationship with us should be that of a a well-trained calf. And we are to labor before him in obedience, but this is not often how we act. And as we act in rebellion, at times he brings the yoke. That which will bring us in conformity with him. And it's not always easy and it's not always fun. But God does require something of us that we come and rely upon him, that we are obedient in all that he has commanded of us. Each of us must acknowledge that we have built up idols, that we have placed altars in our lives. And they demand things of us. They demand sacrifice of time and money and of self 
But God is coming to remove all these things. He will not play second place in our lives. He will settle for nothing less than to be the God of the whole of our being. And the exhortation here, although it is left unsaid, is to come to him. To have faith and obedience and trust in him. If you have never known him, if you are living a life in rebellion before him, the call here is to come and to know God for who he is. To rely and rest and trust upon him for your very being. We came this morning and we asked this question, what is justification? Justification, an act of God's free grace unto sinners. This is something that God does for you in which he pardons all your sins and accepts you as righteous. He accepts you as righteous in his sight, not because of the things you have wrought, not because of the things you have plowed, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed, given, put on them, received by faith alone. If you don't know him, come and know this. If you do know him, then stop putting up idols. Stop worshiping these false gods that we have in our hearts. The lust of our eyes, the, the lust of the flesh, any of it. Tear it down. Know him. This is the reminder that we come and see in this table, isn't it? As this table we come and see Christ's blood poured out, his body broken for us. So that we no longer follow the, the powers of this world, its leaders, its riches. But we come and we know and, and follow him and him alone. We are called to live obediently in faith before him, brothers and sisters in Christ even as we have gone through this passage in Hosea, and even as I've read it several times this week, and even as I reread it to you this morning, I go, what is this all about? <laughs> We're talking about Ephraim and all, Bethel and all these other places and all this imagery that is unfamiliar to us. But at the heart of it, at the core of it, we see God who longs to love his people and a people who live in sinful rebellion and this call Stop living in rebellion. Come and know your God, your Father, and trust and rest in his goodness for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the good news that it has given to us today. Would we, in this passage, even see the love of Jesus poured upon us? And would we stop making sacrifices to idols at the altars of our hearts? Would we stop trusting in the, in the riches of this world? And we, would we trust in him alone? We ask in his holy name. Amen. Please stand.